This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week I'll give you a sneak preview of the February issue of the Jewish Observer. First, from the Dayton section, Chabad Deli Dinner to Go and Speaker. Rabbi Matis Yahu Devlin will share his story from altar boy to rabbi via live stream as part of Chabad's Deli Dinner to Go at 7 p.m. Tuesday, February 9th. The son of a Jewish mother and devout Catholic father, Devlin was featured in National Geographic's documentary, Only for God, Inside Hasidism. He and his wife, Nechama, are directors of the Chabad Jewish Student Center of University of California, Riverside. Kosher box deli dinners will be available for pickup at Chabad on Tuesday afternoon. The cost is $25 per dinner and includes a deli sandwich, kanish, matzo ball soup, coleslaw, pickles, babka, and rugelach. RSVP to ChabadDayton.com. That's C-H-A-B-A-D-D-A-Y-T-O-N dot com or call 937-643-0770, extension 1. Holocaust Writing and Art Contest for Students The Max May and Lydia May Memorial Holocaust Art and Writing Contest is now accepting submissions for 2021. In commemoration of the 76th anniversary of the liberation of concentration camps and death camps in Europe, this year's theme is How Holocaust Study Can Help Us Reduce Bullying, Prejudice, and Hatred. The annual contest is named after the grandparents of Renate Friedman, director of the Dayton Holocaust Resource Center. Students in grades 5 through 12 who attend public, parochial, or homeschool in the Miami Valley are eligible to enter. The deadline for submissions is March 19th. For details and an entry form, contact Jody Farris at jphares at jfgd.net. Introduction to DNA Testing Local genealogist Diana Nelson will lead the Zoom session Introduction to DNA Testing at 10 a.m. Sunday, February 14, for Miami Valley Jewish Genealogy and History in partnership with Beth Abraham Synagogue Men's Club Speaker Series and Temple Israel's Rider Band Lecture Series. Nelson is the Education Chair of the Greene County Chapter of the Ohio Genealogical Society and a member of the Miami Valley Jewish Genealogical uh, Genealogy and History Advisory Committee. She's worked on her family history for 30 years. Nelson became interesting, uh, interested in using DNA testing a dozen years ago and now manages five kits for her family and five for her husband's family. For this session, she'll discuss the different types of DNA tests, what consumers learn from them, and their limitations. Miami Valley Jewish Genealogy and History is a project of the Jewish Federation of Greater Dayton, Support for this free program is provided in memory of Marsha Jaffe. Register at jewishdayton.org forward slash events. JCRC Community Conversations Kenneth S. Stern, Director of the Bard Center for the Study of Hate 
and former longtime director of the American Jewish Committee's Division on Anti-Semitism and Extremism, will talk about his new book, The Conflict Over the Conflict, the Israel-Palestine Campus Debate, at 7 p.m. Wednesday, February 10th, via Zoom as part of the Jewish Community Relations Council's Community Conversations series. In The Conflict Over the Conflict, Stern writes about each side's attempts to censor the other. The approach he champions, innovating ways to increase knowledge while protecting and promoting academic freedom and free speech. Stern was the lead drafter of the working definition of anti-Semitism, which has been adopted by the U.S. Department of State. Moderating the program with Stern will be Kayla rothman Zeker with University of Dayton's Human Rights Center. Partners for the program are the JCC, Jewish Book Council, University of Dayton, and Hillel at Miami University. C-SPAN Director of Communications Howard Mortman will discuss his book, When Rabbis Bless Congress, The Great American Story of Jewish Prayers on Capitol Hill, via Zoom for the Community Conversation at 7 p.m. Thursday, February 25th. Mortman chronicles the more than 400 rabbis who have offered 600-plus prayers to open sessions of Congress since the Civil War. On the program with Mortman will be uh, Rabbi Gary P. Zola, Executive Director of the Jacob Rader Marcus Center of the American Jewish Archives. They'll be interviewed by Dayton native Rachel Katz, Affiliate Relations Manager of C-SPAN. To register for both free programs, go to jewishdayton.org forward slash events. And next from The Observer, navigating, uh, navigating Emotional Health During COVID. Through a long fall and winter in which Jewish Family Services staff have worked to ease the anxiety, fear, and loneliness of clients sheltering against COVID, JFS Director Tara Finer says she is starting to see signs of hope. Clients are scheduling their first vaccinations, and some of them are using us for transportation to the first vaccination, she says. But we're still seeing some ongoing anxiety. We've had some clients say to us that they're just constantly in a state of anxiety about the situation and loneliness. JFS provides transportation for its clients to medical appointments, but is not yet able to meet with clients at their homes. People are really feeling the toll of almost a year that they haven't seen loved ones, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, family, Finer says. You can see the lack of personal touch has had such an impact. JFS and local Jewish clergy have been on the front lines to help individuals feel as connected as possible, engaging their needs for emotional support services over the past 10 months of the pandemic. While all agree there is no substitute for the human touch, in order to save lives, the human touch will have to wait a little longer. I'd love to say we're doing all these great things, but Zoom is so not the answer, says Rabbi Judy Chesson of Temple Beth Or. Having people meeting virtually is amazing, but it's not the same. What I'm learning out of all of this is just the hug and the reaching out and seeing someone face-to-face in person is far more therapeutic than I would have ever dreamed. Rabbi Joshua Ginsberg of Beth Abraham Synagogue says that over the last three months, COVID has begun to directly affect the community, 
beyond the emotional and spiritual toll. More people have had to deal with it themselves getting COVID or an immediate family member, he says. One of the hardest parts of it is not being able to gather physically at the funeral itself in the numbers they would want with the people they would want around them. And also, regardless of the length of the Shiva, not having that gathering and being able to just have the presence of people in all the intangible ways in which people show their care, concern, and support. That's been really hard for a lot of people. As simple as that hug that they just can't have. Both Beth Abraham Synagogue and Beth Jacob Synagogue have suspended the practice of Tahara, the ritual cleansing of the deceased prior to a funeral, for the duration of the pandemic. Ginsburg says most people have wrapped their heads around the idea that there must be certain restrictions. Even so, it's hard to bear. We've lost a lot of people in the community this year, Feiner says, of deaths that aren't necessarily related to COVID. And some have surprised us. Not everybody is sharing if someone has passed because the grieving process is broken. No matter what your religion is, but for us it's Shiva and being able to say Kaddish for those you would want to with a part of a communal prayer and community. Temple Israel's Rabbi Karen Bodney-Hallas says congregants actively reach out to her for pastoral care connected to the pandemic. Right now, they're especially feeling disconnected because they aren't in constant contact with some of their friends, and so they feel like those relationships perhaps are not as strong as they had been, even though they are, Bodney Hallas says. She adds that politicization of the pandemic has led some congregants to approach her for counseling. We're such a divided community. Some people are taking these protocols really seriously, and others are not. And so rather than sometimes engage in what turns into a conflicting discussion, they'd rather talk to someone who's willing just to hear it from their perspective than to help them process whatever it is they're experiencing. That's what I've found. One congregant who views COVID through a political lens told her he thinks there's more emotional damage happening from not gathering in person to hold worship services than he thinks would happen if people got the virus. And I have to say I disagree entirely, Bodney Hallis said. I don't think it's responsible because there are things we can do online that are filling that need that are not as risky. But for some people, they are feeling that is part of the problem. I don't want to pretend there aren't people feeling that way, but they are a very small minority, and we're trying to connect with them as much as we can through the phone to make sure they're not feeling isolated. Congregations holding Shabbat services in person currently are Beth Abraham Synagogue, with only a minion, the quorum of ten required to perform public services, as well as with a live stream. Chabad, which uh, reopened in January after a month closed due to clergy who had contracted COVID, and Beth Jacob Congregation. We've been having in-person services since June, said Beth Jacob Congregation's Rabbi Label Agar. We've actually had a minion for 12 weeks now in a row. Not early enough to Lane to read Torah, but for Musaf, the additional service. People come about 10.30, 11 o'clock, he said. It's gotten to the point 
that we have enough people that the only way to social distance is to use the big sanctuary. It's not a huge crowd, but it's enough that the small sanctuary isn't big enough to socially distance. If people weren't responsible, we wouldn't be able to do it. When the pandemic began, congregants tended to postpone their joyous life cycle events, such as bar and bat mitzvahs. That was the case with the bar mitzvah for Ginsburg's oldest son, Renon. Now, nearly a year later, families tend to go ahead with life cycles, albeit in restricted forms. We've had some bar mitzvahs, and we were lucky enough to be able to do so even until the last one outside at our outdoor sanctuary, so we were able to have more family members there, Chesson says. They sat far apart. We did an inside one because of rain, and just had the family. What was kind of cool was that Rather than have the rabbi and the kids on the bima, the stage, we had the family on the bima, and in essence, the family did the bar mitzvah. The mindset began to change, Bani Halas says. You can't push off these important life cycle events. You have to find a way to do them anyway and make the best of it. One couple I know has had a civil marriage, and they're going to do a big Jewish wedding celebration once everybody can get together. They had a problem finding someone to marry them civilly. They had a license, but nobody could marry them. Nobody wanted to take the risk, and they finally found someone, but it took them a really long time. Along with constantly calling and checking in with those on their membership and client rosters, Jewish community organizations have pivoted to a routine of live stream programs to help people stay active and engaged. The key to our emotional and mental health is routines, Finer says. Routine is key for resilience, and our routines are definitely impacted by what's going on. The pivoting has enabled some people who weren't able to participate in the past to join us. The flip side is there are some people who don't join. They're, neither, uh, they're either not tech-savvy or not comfortable being on the screen. Groups aren't for everybody. Their houses are probably very clean. They've baked everything there is to bake. They're getting to know their spouses once again, Rabbi Haviva Horvitz said of her congregants with Temple Beth Shalom in Middletown. Along with the twice-a-month Shabbat services she offers on Zoom, Horvitz has also added a Torah study session. That's given them a strong social outlet, she says. It's just a lot of fun. I'll give them a homework assignment where there's a certain number of parshiot, Torah portions to read, with instructions to focus on people. Who are they meeting? What are they doing? Things like that. Number two is on language. Everybody's translation may be a little different. Why is this word being used instead of that word? They should ask questions. It's perfectly okay to come to Torah asking questions. We started off like that, and they're really coming out of their shells asking questions they've never seemed to ask. That's been kind of neat. Beth Abraham Synagogue's Cantor Andrea Raisin says her Kabbalah in Shabbat, Kabbalah in Shabbat program to usher in the Sabbath has helped build and sustain community since COVID hit. For us to have approximately 18 screens, which usually adds up to about 23 people on a regular basis, is amazing because our Friday night regular minion up until before this all started. We rarely crack Dominion, Raisin says. We had three to five people there. She says the program is less about the service and more about connecting. 
It's a delightful, wonderful group of people who are so, so caring and keep up with each other, Raisin says. We've celebrated grandchildren and great-grandchildren that have come into this during this time, and people check in, and people who have been sick. It's really been heartening to me. I think folks are really trying to be as patient as they can, says Rabbi Kari Cosberg of his congregants with Temple Shalom in Springfield. We've had some of the older people that have actually had the virus, but they're really taking it in stride. The ones who have had it, thank God, have recovered and are still taking precautions. This is actually when you see how much control we're in and how helpless we really are. We really do have to be patient. I was part of a Torah study class last night, and we were talking about how when Moses came back to talk to the people, everyone thought redemption was going to happen all at once. But it was a process. Congregants' biggest fear, Bonnie Hallis says, is being alone with COVID. God forbid someone gets sick, knowing that, as some of the people in our congregation have experienced that their loved ones have died and they haven't been able to be with them. That's been one of the hardest things. But really, it's the fear of just knowing that if they're being as careful as they need to be, and if they get sick, who would they possibly pass it on to? Since the pandemic arrived, Bodney Hallis joins Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley's Friday Zoom sessions with local clergy each week. Montgomery County Health Commissioner Jeffrey A. Cooper also joins the sessions. I found it very meaningful, Bodney Hallis says. Being on there with other clergy, we begin with a prayer and we end with a prayer, and we talk about the needs of our congregations and some of us, our own needs, and watching our own clergy friends go through COVID in their own homes. I feel like there's been a lot of support in that network. And for those who are interested in contacting Jewish Family Services for support services, the phone number is 937-610-1555. And next from the religion section of the Observer, The Black Wedding by Rabbi Judy Chesson, Temple Beth Or. Planning a wedding these days is a daunting proposition with the current COVID-19 restrictions. Wedding couples wonder if they will be allowed to invite guests or need imprinted masks to go along with their kippot. Only one wedding was designed for just such a moment as this. Jewish folklore had it that a Schwarze Chassene, or black wedding, could avert a plague or pandemic. A black chupa, wedding canopy, was erected in the middle of the town's Jewish cemetery. The rabbi would then marry off two of the town's most marginalized citizens, such as orphans, beggars, or those with physical disabilities. The Schwarze Chassene, or Magefe Chassene, plague wedding, was a blend of people's most altruistic impulses and their more base motives. On the one hand, the mitzvah of marrying off and supporting the town's neediest citizens was an appeal to God to lift the epidemic. The Jews hoped the wedding would fool the angel of death into thinking it had no power over the celebrating community. In actuality, the wedding's joy and anticipation may have had the side effect, the side benefit, of alleviating the townspeople's crippling fear of isolation, disease, and death. 
On the other hand, there may have been less generous impulses at work as well. Yiddish folktales describe gift-giving, scenes reminiscent of kaparot or scapegoat rituals, casting sins off oneself and onto another. Each townsperson would hand a gift to the couple, loudly proclaiming, From me to you, as if they released the plague from themselves and onto the sacrificial couple. While black weddings originated in Eastern Europe during the Black Death, the custom continued in the 20th century. During the Spanish flu outbreak in 1918, Polish Jews tried every known protection, such as shaving their hair, drawing black lines around houses, sleeping with their pajamas inside out, nailing knives to rooftops, or posting signs on the town's gates, which read, Typhus has already reigned here, or nobody is inside. When these rituals failed, the community tried performing black weddings. One such marriage joined Mendel and Susia, two of the town's mentally ill bachelors, in marriage in hopes of atoning for the community's sins and protect its members. Could this have been Judaism's first same-sex marriage? When Jews came to the United States, they brought the tradition with them. Newspapers record several plague weddings during the 1918-19 Spanish flu outbreak. In Philadelphia's Cobbs Creek Jewish Cemetery, Fanny Jacobs and Harold Rosenberg were united in marriage in October 1918. Sadly, genealogical research yields nothing else about the couple, so it is assumed that they may have died from the plague. Not all Jews approved of such primitive superstitions. The Jewish exponent of Philadelphia published the following editorial the week after Fanny and Harold's wedding. The wedding held in a Jewish cemetery last Sunday for the purpose of staying the ravages of the epidemic was a most deplorable exhibition of benighted superstition. We are told that the custom originated in Russia. It and the participants should have been permitted to remain there. Unfortunately, the publicity given to the occurrence will convey to many people that this is a custom sanctioned and encouraged by the Jewish religion. The people who do such things do not know what Judaism means. While we may think this custom was a colorful relic of a bygone era, a black wedding was actually held in the city of B'nai Brak in March 2020. At the onset of COVID in Israel, participants hoped that the ritual would stop the virus's massive spread throughout the ultra-Orthodox community. Two orphans were married in a cemetery under a black chuppah with no social distancing. Unfortunately, we now know that the custom did not avert the virus's lethal spread in Israel. Alas, given that few couples these days wish to celebrate their weddings in a cemetery, we might do better to rely upon the tried-and-true methods of containing the disease through social distancing, masks, and a new safe and sure vaccine. And next from The Observer, the marvelous Mr. Mazel, with Mr. Mazel himself, Scott Hallis. Neurologist Dr. Joel Vandersloos and the research division of his practice, Neurology Diagnostics, are participating in a clinical trial aimed at combating Alzheimer's. The Trailblazer Alls trial, conducted by Eli Lilly, has had marked success treating patients with early symptomatic Alzheimer's disease. 
Treatment is a monoclonal antibody given intravenously which attacks the proteins in the brain believed to be responsible. Eli Lilly recently shared preliminary data demonstrating a significant reduction in progression of the disease, Joel said. Participants who received the drug had a 32% deceleration in the rate of decline compared with those who received a placebo, according to the New York Times. In 6 to 12 months, plaques were gone and stayed gone, Dr. Daniel Skrivronsky, the company's chief scientific officer, told the newspaper. We are excited to be a part of this success, Joel said. We have been recruiting patients for the Eli Lilly Trailblazer All's trial for a few years. Even more so, we are thrilled to continue to recruit for the follow-up Eli Lilly trial, Trailblazer All's 2. The Neurology Diagnostics Research Division also studies Parkinson's disease and multiple sclerosis. Dr. Miri Lader, a 2014 graduate of the Wright State University Boonshaft School of Medicine, became Director of Medical Student Education with the BSOM Department of Pediatrics in January. Miri is a pediatric hospitalist and Director of Continuing Medical Education at Dayton Children's Hospital. I was drawn to the position because the education that I received at BSOM needs to be carried on, Miri said. As Director of Medical Student Education, Miri will design, manage, and evaluate the program, as well as communicate expectations of the pediatric clerkship to BSOM students, faculty, staff, and administration. I would be honored to be considered the link between students and faculty during the pediatric portion of their medical education, Miri said. She said she fell in love with pediatrics while completing rotations at Dayton Children's as a medical student. Kids are all little miracles, and I want to spend my days watching miracles take place, Mary said. Rabbi Bernard Barsky has received an honorary Doctor of Divinity degree from Jewish Theological Seminary, marking his 25 years of service in the rabbinate. Send your announcements to Scott Hallis, Mr. Mazel. And Scott's email is S-C-O-T-T-H-A-L-A-S-Z, numeral one, at gmail.com. S-C-O-T-T-H-A-L-A-S-Z, number one, at gmail.com. Next, from the Jewish Family Education section of the Jewish Observer, Heaven on Earth, Considering Creation, a series by Candace R. Quietek. In 1928, settlers at Kibbutz Beit Alpha were draining the swamps in Israel's Jezreel Valley when they spotted mosaic shards. Excavations unearthed a 5th century synagogue complex with a nearly perfectly preserved floor mosaic. The middle panel was as unexpected as it was breathtaking. A zodiac wheel with the 12 symbols labeled in Hebrew a central sun figure driving a chariot among the moon and stars, and the four seasons as female figures in the corners. From synagogue imagery to the timing of festivals, holidays, and Shabbat, to the earliest verses of Genesis, the celestial bodies play a significant role in Jewish thought and tradition. God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate day from night. They shall serve as signs for the set times, the days and the years, and they shall serve as lights in the expanse of the sky to shine upon the earth. And it was so. 
God made the two great lights, the greater light to dominate the day and the lesser light to dominate the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the sky to shine upon the earth, to dominate the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw how good this was, and there was evening and there was morning a fourth day. Genesis 1.14-19 Long before modern science, the sages of the Gemara asked the obvious question. If light was created on the first day, how can it be that the sun, moon, and stars were set in the sky on the fourth day? Some concluded the divine light of the first day was not that of the sun, but a different kind of light. Others asserted that the light was the same, but the luminaries themselves were not stabilized or suspended in their designated places in the firmament until the fourth day. The medieval philosopher Rashi added that all the potentials of heaven and earth were created on the first day, but each was set in place on the day when it was so commanded. Despite their literary style, the early rabbinic explanations correlate remarkably well with today's scientific knowledge. Modern cosmology's widely accepted Big Bang theory suggests the primordial elements of everything in the universe were all there at the first moment. The pattern of darkness followed by visible light in the universe's early ages was generated by changes in cosmic temperatures, atomic structures, and radiation wavelengths, and only eons later by the formation of stars and galaxies, according to science journalist Charles Choi. As our solar system emerged, the primeval atmosphere of Earth was an opaque methane-dominated fog bathed in both cosmic microwave background radiation and light from the sun and moon. From Earth's vantage point, however, the individual celestial lights would have been indistinguishable until chemical changes in the atmosphere transformed it into a transparent sky making it appear that the sun, moon, and stars were newly suspended in place. At a first glance, the fourth day's text seems only to explain the three roles of the Earth's luminaries as sources of light, visible dividers between day and night, and signs to indicate time. These functions certainly match the daily rhythm of light and darkness, the annual cycles of months and seasons, and the timing of Jewish rituals. But a second look unearths some revolutionary ideas. The text is clear. The sun, moon, and stars neither created nor controlled light or time. In the beginning, God created light and darkness, initiated and took control of time, and fashioned the celestial lights and their tasks. Earth's luminaries function only as anonymous servants that provide light signal the rhythms of life and serve as humans timekeepers just like that the ancient deities of the sky were dethroned the limited roles of the sun moon and stars further stripped away the ancient belief that the celestial lights directed fate and fortune events in the natural world even a person's life and character the stars in particular are practically ignored biblical scholar nachem sarna notes a silence that is a clear repudi uh, repudiation of astrology. And yet, what about Beit Alpha, one of seven ancient synagogues in Israel with nearly identical floor mosaics? Abundant evidence suggests a mystical Jewish tradition, according to Israeli tour guide and author Walter Zanger. 
From the synagogue entrance, Jewish worshippers symbolically climbed upward across a mosaic panel depicting the merit of righteous ancestors through the vortex of pagan images interpreted as reflections of God's omnipotence and onto a final synagogue mosaic filled with Jewish symbols positioned right at the base of the ark, the dwelling place of the Torah. Revolutionary ideas turned into ritual. A final revolutionary thought comes from Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik. At a Brit Milah, a ritual circumcision, the greater and lesser lights of creation's fourth day are invoked in the prayer, May this small one become great. Soloveitchik explains that, like the moon, the infant is small because it can only reflect what it receives from others. But we pray that the child will grow up to become great like the sun, an independent source of light who will enlighten others. That would be heaven on earth. And literature to share, as suggested by Candace Quietek. Can Robots Be Jewish? And Other Pressing Questions of Modern Life by Amy Schwartz, editor. In this anthology of Ask the Rabbi columns from Moment Magazine, editor Amy Schwartz highlights the breadth, wisdom, and creativity of Jewish thinking about the modern world. Rabbis spanning ten denominations, from humanist to ultra-Orthodox, offer brief but substantive responses to questions about editing genes, using social media, racism, happiness, belief in God, and more. Read it all the way through or savor it question by question. And Honey on the Page, a treasury of Yiddish children's literature by Miriam Udell, editor and translator. This children's anthology offers engaging new translations of familiar and little-known tales and poems from across the Yiddish-speaking world of the 20th century. Holidays and Heroes, Folk Tales and Fools, and more can be found in this extensive collection, highlighted by delightfully whimsical illustrations. Children, families, and teachers will enjoy exploring Judaism's unique Yiddish culture through its literature in this volume. And from the Arts and Culture section of The Observer, best-selling author's latest historical nail-biter. New York Times best-selling nonfiction author Howard Bloom will talk about his latest book, Night of the Assassins, the untold story of Hitler's plot to kill FDR, Churchill, and Stalin, February 18, as part of the JCC Virtual Cultural Arts and Book Series. Bloom brings to light the palpable Nazi attempt in 1943 to kill the three Allied leaders at their secret meeting in Tehran. Aware of the impending Nazi defeat, Hitler saw Operation Long Jump as a last-ditch effort to negotiate peace with a different lineup of Allied leaders. Elite Nazi commandos were parachuted into Iran with six days to complete their mission. Bloom is the author of the New York Times bestseller American Lightning, Wanted, The Gold of Exodus, Gangland, The Floor of Heaven, and In the Enemy's House. Publisher's weekly set of Night of the Assassins, Ian Fleming himself could not have written such an improbable yet actual plot. And this will be via Zoom on Thursday, February 18th at 7 o'clock. It's free. Register at jewishdayton.org. And next, the obituary section of the Jewish Observer. Marilyn Ruth Caden passed away January 6th, 2021. She was born Marilyn Ruth Stauffer on July 16, 1929, in Galleon, Ohio. 
She was a graduate of Bucktill High School, Akron, and the University of Dayton. Mrs. Caden was married to Edward B. Caden, Jr. from 1953 to 1992. Mrs. Caden is survived by her son Curtis, his wife Janice, Amy Hauk, the mother of her grandchildren, granddaughter Ginny Hitches and Mike of Newfoundland, PA, and grandson Robert Caden and share of Wainan, Shaanxi Province, China, and her great-grandchildren Ming Yu Caden, Natalie Caden, Ronan Hitches, and Brooke Hitches. The thing people remember most about Mrs. Caden was she was always in a happy mood. She could be silly, if not funny, and always wanted to be around other people. Mrs. Caden loved playing bridge and played in various groups. As a patron of the arts in the Miami Valley, she frequently attended plays, art exhibitions, and musical performances. Traveling extensively around the United States and the world, she made sure to take each of her grandchildren on trips. While trained as a teacher, her life was more about love and attention to others. While she was a good businesswoman and ran a family business with her husband, her true passion was swimming. She was a pioneer in teaching infants to swim and in helping people with arthritis to benefit by water exercise programs. She was a Red Cross certified water safety instructor since the age of 18. She taught at various pools in Dayton, including the YWCA, until they changed their focus to women's issues and daycare. She then went to work for what is now the Jewish Federation of Greater Dayton until their facility on Denlinger Road was sold. She then went to work for the Kleppitz YMCA in Englewood, where she taught swimming and water aerobics until she was no longer able to do so. Memorial contributions for Marilyn Caden may be made to the Kleppitz YMCA, 1200 West National Road, Englewood, Ohio, 45315. Interment was at Greenwood Cemetery, Williard, Huron County, Ohio. Harley M. Elman, M.D., 84, of Dayton, died January 15th in Naples, Florida, after a struggle with cancer. Dr. Elman was born April 1st, 1936, in Dayton, to John and Ida Elman. The family later moved to Richmond, Virginia, where Dr. Elman grew up, going to school and working at his father's shoe store. He graduated from Thomas Jefferson High School in Richmond. He stayed home for college, earning a Bachelor of Science degree from the University of Richmond in three years and Phi Beta Kappa honors. Dr. Elman went on to earn a Doctor of Medicine degree from Medical College of Virginia and was selected to join the prestigious Alpha Omega Alpha Honor Medical Society. In 1966 to 1968, he served in the U.S. Army as a captain stationed at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. In 1964, he met Mary Ann Sue Burney. After a courtship, the couple married and settled in Dayton. They had four children, Jeffrey, Lori, Lynn, and Julie. Dr. Elman specialized in rheumatology and internal medicine and had a successful medical practice for over 50 years in downtown Dayton. Dr. Elman loved his job, rising in the wee hours every day for years to go to the hospital for rounds. Even away from the hospital and the office, he read medical journals and talked to other doctors about the practice of medicine. Late in life, he continued to have lunch at the doctor's lounge at the hospital, sharing camaraderie and listening to talks on the latest medical issues. 
He played golf whenever he could and nervously watched sports. He had a long-standing interest in World War II, reading fiction and non-fiction books on the subject and watching the History Channel. It was fun to cook for Dr. Elman because he appreciated it all, and eating was a pure joy for him. Dr. Elman was kind and giving and also liked to tease with his dry sense of humor. Dr. Elman is survived by his wife of 56 years, Marianne Elman, his children Jeffrey and Kelly Elman of Atlanta, Lori Elman of Sycamore, Ohio, Lynn and Scott Goldberg of Columbus, Julie and Alain Futwang of Berlingame, California, seven grandchildren, Lily, Sydney, Jessica, Jaden, Daniel, Jordan, and Jake, his brother, Leon and Alice Elman of Bonita Springs, Florida, and his sister Arlene and Alan Zeno of Norfolk, Virginia. He held a special place for longtime family friend Beatrice Bolden. Interment was at Beth Abraham Cemetery. The family asks that donations in Dr. Elman's memory be made to the Arthritis Foundation, arthritis.org forward slash donate, or the Cleveland Clinic. Daniel, Danny Elon, passed away December 22nd at the age of 78 as a result of COVID-19 pneumonia at the Mayo Clinic Hospital in Scottsdale, Arizona. Born on July 10, 1942 in Jerusalem, Israel, at the time it was British-mandated Palestine, to parents Zeb Elon and Sarah Elon Schwartz, who had immigrated to Palestine a decade earlier, Danny was the oldest of three, including his siblings Yoav and Anat. Danny was known among his friends and family as a great storyteller, beginning with tales of a rambunctious child who was never afraid of risk, which probably shaped him into the renowned scientist and educator who he would eventually become. He met his wife Chaya in 1963 while studying at the Technion Institute of Technology in Israel, where he earned his bachelor, master, and Ph.D. degrees in material science engineering. Chaya and Danny married in 1965 in Haifa, and their first child, Amir, was born five years later. In 1972, upon completion of his Ph.D., he relocated his family to Dayton to work for the Air Force Materials Laboratory, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. He was principal investigator and senior research associate, Air Force Materials Laboratory, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, 1974 to 1985. Their second child, Orit Amy, was born in 1977, and they raised their family in the suburbs of Dayton, where they lived until 2015. Following his passion for teaching, Danny began teaching at the University of Dayton from 1986 until his official retirement several years ago. He also taught courses at Wright State University as well. Daniel was the chair of the Graduate Materials Engineering Program at UD, in addition, he was also a consultant for aerospace companies in the U.S., Japan, and Europe on titanium alloy technology. Over the years, his titanium and titanium alloy research resulted in multiple patents and awards and accolades, including being inducted as a member of Europe, the European Academy of Sciences and earning a faculty fellowship with Boeing to build the first 787 Dreamliner. His professional and academic honors also included being named a Fellow of the American Society of Metals, as well as several teaching and research awards from the University of Dayton. 
In his spare time, Daniel enjoyed combining his professional skills with his hobby of history and archaeology in ways that included lecturing on the ancient art of sword-making, precious stones, and megalith, which even earned him several appearances in documentaries and broadcast on the, and broadcast on the History Channel. Dandy's work also has left a legacy in both academia and education. He led research with the University of Dayton Research Institute and also chaired a program with support from the National Science Foundation, bringing interest for women in engineering programs to the public high schools, and in particular recruiting women into engineering programs, WINGS, and another program for doctoral students seeking education advancement in the field of material science. Despite his numerous awards and accolades, Daniel was actually a very humble man, never wanting to be called Dr. Elon, but only Danny to his friends and students. When he retired from the University of Dayton several years ago, Chaya and Danny moved to Peoria, Arizona, at, uh, where he taught adjunct at Arizona State University and online for the University of Dayton. At home, he led very popular talks at his STEM club in his community lecture series as well, drawing huge crowds as he always was an engaging speaker. He was a loving husband, father, and grandfather who believed in showing his children the world and never missing an opportunity to take them along on his many travels. He also enjoyed tinkering with woodworking and making titanium jewelry in his workshop in his garage. He was an avid lover of independent films, classical music, and discussing politics. His grandchildren were his life, often kidnapping them on visits and taking them on trips to museums, restaurants, and always letting them stay overnight with Chaya and himself in hotels and resorts. Daniel was an active member in his faith, as a member of his congregation at Beth Jacob Congregation in Dayton, and served on the board of his daughter's Jewish day school, Hillel Academy. Once retired, he was also a very active member of Chabad of Dayton and Phoenix, where he never missed a Gemara class on Wednesday nights. He was a proud father of his daughter's service leading, always attending and participating in her synagogue when visiting her in San Antonio, Texas, at Agudas Achim, were live streaming when the pandemic started in March 2020. Danny's friends and family will always remember his sharp wit, passion for life, and enjoyment of a good debate on almost any subject. He is survived by his wife, Chaya Elon, and his children, Amir and Karen, and Orit, Amy, and Frank Pemberton, and his grandchildren, Emily, Benjamin, Ethan, Joel, and Gabriel. He was preceded in death by his parents, Ze'ev and Sarah Elon, and sister Anat Anshul. Donations may be sent to jewishparadisevalley.com forward slash donate. Dr. Lawrence H. Linder, 1931 to 2000, uh, 2021. Dr. Lawrence Larry H. Linder, 89, of West Brandywine Township, Pennsylvania, passed away on January 1 at Freedom Village. He was the beloved husband of the late Joan Hamas Linder, with whom he shared 62 years of marriage. Born in Dayton, Ohio, he was the son of the late Maurice Milton Linder and Celia Eisenman Linder. Dr. Linder graduated from Fairview High School in Dayton, 
where he played football and ran track. He attended Northwestern University and Northwestern University School of Medicine where he met Joan and earned his Doctor of Medicine degree. They were married December 23, 1956 in New Orleans where Dr. Linder completed his internship at Charity Hospital in Pediatric Surgery and began his private surgical practice. In 1969, the family relocated to Middletown, Ohio, where Dr. Linder had a private surgical practice and was associated with Middletown Regional Hospital, now Atrium Medical Center, for 26 years. Dr. Linder served as treasurer and later as the Ohio Governor-at-Large of the Ohio Chapter of the American College of Surgeons. He also served as treasurer of Temple Beth Shalom. In 1980, Dr. Linder received his private pilot license and enjoyed many hours flying single-engine airplanes out of Middletown Regional, Hook Field. As a golf enthusiast, Dr. Linder enjoyed playing golf and volunteering for the Kroger Senior Classic Tournament in Mason. In 2004, Joan and Larry relocated to Cincinnati, where both served as art docents for the Cincinnati Art Museum. Dr. Linder is survived by his sons, Craig Randall Linder and Mark David Linder, his daughter, Karen Beth Linder, and five grandchildren. A celebration of Dr. Linder's life is being planned for the summer of 2021. For information, email lindercarenb at gmail.com. Memorial contributions in the memory of Dr. Linder may be made to the American Macular Degeneration Foundation. Audrey Hope Office Margolis, 19, uh, rather 97, 97 years old, died January 10th. She was an extraordinary woman who surpassed the challenge each of us inherits upon birth, that of making our world better and more beautiful for our being in it. A lifelong resident of Dayton, Mrs. Margolis attended Steele High School and went on to receive her Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Illinois in 1945. She returned to Dayton where she married the love of her life, John A. Jack Margolis. Audrey and Jack delighted in each other's presence, drew strength from each other's wisdom, and joy from each other's laughter. Mrs. Margolis was a tireless champion of the environment, justice, education, civility, and her family. Throughout her life, she set out to tackle injustices, fight careless commercial development, protect our natural resources, and to educate anyone within earshot of the importance of doing so. Understanding that change begins in your own backyard and driven by a passionate love and awe of nature, she pioneered the transformation of a vacant lot in her beloved Dayton View neighborhood into Marathon Commons, an educational wildflower and butterfly garden. Engaging and full of life, Mrs. Margolis had a magical and healing touch, a discerning eye, and a radiant smile. She created beauty and a sense of wonder whenever and wherever she could. She inspired those who knew her to embrace every day to the fullest and to, exceed, and to seek knowledge, justice, beauty, and most importantly, loving kindness. Mrs. Margolis was charming. She had a wonderful sense of humor, 
and an easy laugh, and while she was tenacious about everything for which she was passionate, she never took herself seriously. Deeply loved by those who knew her, she warmed the cockles of our hearts. She was preceded in death by her husband, John A. Margolis, son, Dr. John H. Margolis, parents, Louis P. Office and Sarah E. Office, sister Margie L. Office. She is survived by her loving family, two daughters, Jane and Dr. Daniel Miller, Kathy and Michael Schwartz, daughter-in-law Joanne and Hugh Margolis Sales, eight grandchildren, Scott Miller, Michael Miller and Timothy Miller, Emily and Carl Goodman Margolis, Lori and Adam Rejwan Margolis, Elizabeth Margolis, Allison and Blake Waxler, Hoke and Jay Kim first, four great-grandchildren, Jack and Audrey Goodman, Charlie Waxler, Ethan Rejwan, nieces and nephew Susie Himmelhock, Connie Bally, Audrey Himmelhock, Carolyn Doug Kedison, Albert Copeland, Mary Lynn Blackford, and Sear Daniel. The family is thankful for the loving and devoted care Mrs. Margolis received from her amazing caregivers, Teresa Kraft and Carmen Jones. They demonstrated the power and beauty of loving kindness every day. We also wish to thank all the exceptional staff at the suites at Walnut Creek who loved and cared for Mrs. Margolis for over 12 years. These frontline caregivers went above and beyond to take care of Mrs. Margolis during this difficult and tragic COVID epidemic. Interment was at Riverview Cemetery. The family welcomes donations in Mrs. John A. Margolis's memory to Oldwood Audubon Center or Cox Arboretum Metro Parks. Jane H. Siegel, age 83 of Dayton, passed away January 8th at Miami Valley Hospital. Mrs. Siegel was an active member in the Dayton Jewish community for many years, being a former member of Shomri Hamuna, attending Beth Jacob Congregation, teaching Sunday school at Beth Abraham Synagogue, and working at Covenant House. She was preceded in death by her beloved husband, Leon S., Mrs. Siegel is survived by her sons, Yachaskel S. of New York, Ray A. of New York, Moshe E. of Kettering, and Chaim B. of Kettering, sister Ellen Bendow Resnick of Connecticut, brother Bruce Bendow of British Columbia, grandchildren Oscar and Hugo, and many other relatives and friends. Interment was at Beth Jacobs Cemetery. If desired, memorial contributions may be made to seeingeye.org in Mrs. Siegel's memory. And next from The Observer, I got married during the pandemic. My wedding was perfect by Devorah Schachter, JTA, New York. Last March, the man I was dating asked me to become his wife. Social distancing was a new phenomenon and Lysol wipes were still available for purchase at my local drugstore. However, the fear and uncertainty had begun to spread, and only about 15 people attended my engagement celebration. With the sparse knowledge that we had in early March, I wasn't bothered by the slightly muted celebration, knowing my wedding day would come just a few months later, as is the standard in my Orthodox community. My fiancé returned home to Florida, and I expected to see him again in the next week or so. 
But as the number of cases began to increase suddenly and shockingly, I soon began to realize that life as we knew it was about to be replaced by an unforeseen reality. The wedding I had expected would feature the usual aspects of a wedding and proceed as my sibling's ceremonies had. Flower arrangements, a beautiful hall, camera crews, catered meals, and hours of dancing with my friends and family. It was five weeks until I saw my fiancé again. At first I thought we should push off our wedding to a time of more certainty. However, while deliberating in person, my future husband and I became increasingly aware that the only path to the wedding we, would envi we envisioned and expected would require significant delay. Under Jewish law, a relationship is not meant to be intimate until after marriage, and a marriage is generally not supposed to be delayed. Due to the travel restrictions that prevented us from seeing each other, FaceTime became our main means of communication. The allure of a normal wedding began to fade if it meant spending more time in this awkward reality. I asked my parents, is it possible to plan a wedding for two weeks from today? After recovering from the initial shock, they were ready to hear my reasoning. I explained that waiting in limbo indefinitely wasn't worth postponing the very much anticipated next stage of my life. After hearing me out, my ever-supportive parents were on board. With one call to the party planner, the chaos began. While we frantically ran errands and attended numerous appointments, our party planner transformed what was once a bare slab of backyard concrete into a draped and detailed outdoor wedding hall. Two weeks later, the day arrived, and it was one that the people who were there will never forget. I'm the youngest of five married siblings, and we were all in agreement that my wedding had an element that was absent from any other we had attended, a pure joy created by the small gathering, allowing everyone to totally focus on the unification of two people. A positive mindset is one of the most powerful tools we have. Throughout this entire ordeal, I never felt anything other than fortunate. I had been given what so many others hope and pray for, the opportunity to begin the rest of my life with someone who possessed qualities that far exceeded my expectations. While I understood that our wedding would not be normal, the essence of what we were trying to achieve on this monumental occasion would be exactly the same. A wedding itself was not the goal, but a means to a much greater and higher purpose. It seems fairly easy to become entangled in and overwhelmed by the details that make up a typical wedding and the significance of the journey on which the people, the couple is about to embark may become muddled under the layers of other aspects that compete for their attention. In contrast, our wedding day was stripped down to the bare minimum. We were extremely limited in terms of guests, venue options, and even the menu. To me, that void was filled with something worth so much more, meaning. The focus of my wedding was nothing other than me and my husband. When his foot broke the glass, we began the life we had long anticipated. My wedding, bereft of all frills and embellishments, was not a compromise. It was a gift. After a wedding and the excitement of the day has passed, a couple is left with only themselves and the life they will build together. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you, as always, for listening.